When you walk into a Marks and Spencer's, everything feels very British. From trifles in the food hall to really obviously labeled British-made wool sweaters, Marks and Spencer's feels proud to be British. What is British? Well, that's a question just as complex as what Northern is. Lots of people have a different idea of what it means. But I think if you're British, you will at least agree with me on this. Marks and Spencer's is a very British company. They are on our high streets, their food halls are tucked into our residential areas, and according to Marks and Spencer's, one in three women in Britain buy their bras from there too. Bra facts don't lie. People shop at Marks and Spencer's. If you live in Leeds, you may know the very popular fact that Marks and Spencer's was started right here in this city, in our very own Kirkgate Market, the market I visited in the first episode. But the British staple for a quick evening meal or jumpers that your mom would approve of had a really interesting start. Yes, it's British. Yes, it's Northern. And yes, it was started by an immigrant refugee, Michael Marks. My name is Caitlin Badger, and this is Northern, a podcast exploring the history, stories, landscapes, and people of the north of England in an attempt to discover and share what it means to be Northern. Though Marks and Spencer's, or M&S, started in Leeds, we can't start our story there today. Instead, we have to head to Imperial Russia, of all places, where things were very unstable at the time. The Tsar Alexander II was assassinated on the 13th of March, 1881, after many, many attempts by people to do so. For a bit of broader historical context, in Britain at the time, Queen Victoria was the reigning monarch. And in January of 1881, Thomas Edison and Alexander Graham Bell formed the Oriental Telephone Company. The radical group that put together the assassination attempt was the Narodnoya Volya, the People's Will. I'm really sorry that that's not pronounced better. As a backlash to the assassination, the Tsarist government put into place more precautions. Well, more restrictions to people's freedom. They were certainly shaken. And a lot of people put restrictions in place out of fear. Violence was incited particularly against the Jewish population. The Jewish population already lived separate in the Pale of Settlement. The Pale of Settlement was an area that was set aside for almost a century already as a part of Imperial Russia where Jewish people were annexed to. They could lead their lives in the cities and towns there, although not all of the cities, even some of those were off limits to them. But in the Pale of Settlement, they could be controlled and watched by the government. It was started in 1791, so anti-Jewish sentiment was not new to Russia. 
but things were definitely amping up. In 1881, Michael Marx, the founder of Marx and Spencer, was living in present-day Slonim, Belarus, which was in the Pale of Settlement. There were two waves of anti-Jewish violence in late imperial Russia. The first was 1881 to 1882. The second was 1903 to 1906. And according to an expert, these are best understood as the consequence of a host of challenges and pressures that confronted Tsarist society and led to violence against Jews. In many areas of the Pale of Settlement, violent outbursts were systematically carried out against the Jewish communities, and these are known as pogroms. If the systematic violence wasn't enough, a new set of laws limiting the movement and freedoms of the Jewish people were put in place in May of 1882, known as the May Laws. The May Laws imposed more rules on the Jewish people. They were as follows. The Jewish people couldn't settle anew, so they couldn't move somewhere else outside of the towns and boroughs they lived in. Secondly, that they couldn't issue or receive mortgages or deeds, and that they couldn't transact business on Sundays and on Christian holidays. The laws were restrictive, as well as confusingly worded. People would leave where they were living to visit family or friends, only to come back and be told that they couldn't settle anew, but they already lived there. As anyone knows, restrictive rules are stressful, but even more so is not knowing what exactly you have to be adhering to especially amidst such violence and confusion. It's of no surprise then that immigration became a popular idea. One academic states that a phenomenal frenzy fed by journalistic rumor and hearsay, which might be best described as immigration mania, consumed the Russian Jewish people for the better part of 18 months. People wanted out and they were rushing to do so. So in 1882, Michael Marx left the Pale of Settlement, trading his life in Belarus for life in the north of England. While you may not have heard of the Pale of Settlement or pogroms or May laws, it's likely you've heard of the musical Fiddler on the Roof. Set in 1905, 13 years after Michael Marx left his home, It takes place during that second wave of violence I mentioned before. At the end of the musical, part of the family immigrates to America, or at least we see them leave their town and start that journey. For Jewish people fleeing, there were two main places they would go. The majority fled to the United States, but 18% fled to a much closer option, the UK. And then there were those that immigrated to the UK, but had made the journey to the USA, only to be turned around at Ellis Island, maybe for not having the correct papers. It's worth remembering that Lady Liberty wasn't the beacon of hope in the end for many who turned up at her gates. 
Immigrating to the UK in the late 1880s was very different from today. As an immigrant here today, I can tell you that there are mountains of paperwork, years of proof and minute details of your everyday life required, extremely high costs, fees at every stage, it takes years to fully immigrate, and if you're willing to pay more into the pocket of the government, they'll process it faster for you. It is confusing, difficult, and emotional. And I'm sure it was confusing and difficult and emotional in the 1880s too. But it wasn't until 1905 that the Aliens Act came into play, which monitored and attempted to control the immigration coming into the UK. The Open University states that the 1905 Aliens Act declared that undesirable immigrants would be denied entry to Britain. Although it was vaguely worded, the restrictions were mostly levied against Jewish and Eastern European immigrants. Michael Marks and countless other refugees entered, luckily, before the Aliens Act. Many of the refugees immigrating headed to the big city of London, of course, and Manchester was a popular choice as well. But word got around that there were businesses in Leeds, such as cobblers and tailors, that were happy to employ Jewish refugees. And that was enough to compel people to come. Michael Marks was the youngest of five children, and he had been brought up by his father, Mordecai. His mother, Rebecca, died shortly after his birth. Mordecai was a tailor and a part owner of a grain mill. According to Marks and Spencers, when Michael arrived in Leeds, he spoke no English, had no money, and knew no trade. Nor was he physically strong. A fact I really like that they include there. When he arrived in Leeds, he was most likely headed to find work in Barron's, a Leeds clothing manufacturer that employed a lot of people in town. The story goes that he was doing just that when he stopped to ask for directions from a local Yorkshireman, Isaac Dewhurst. Isaac ran his own business selling wholesale goods, I.J. Dewhurst Limited. With little English, the pair got to communicating somehow, and Isaac found out that Michael had been a peddler in Russia, and apparently found him personable, something that comes up often in remarks about Michael. Apparently, it really does pay to be nice, because Isaac loaned Michael five pounds, and Michael then turned around and bought goods off of Dewhurst to sell. A proper Yorkshire peddler now, Michael sold goods around the area and seemed to have a knack for it. Within a matter of months, he upgraded to renting a stall in Leeds Kirkgate Market, still purchasing his wholesale goods from Isaac. With a keen eye for business, Michael realized that his best-selling items were the penny items. And that's when Mark's Penny Bazaar was opened in the market. And the legend goes that he put up a sign saying, don't ask the price, it's a penny. Mark's Penny Bazaar is considered the first Mark's and Spencer store, although it was just Mark's then. And it was a huge success. Marx opened up more bazaars in more markets around the north of England. 
After a couple years of great business, Michael wanted to grow it further, but he needed a partner. He asked his supplier Isaac, but Isaac was not interested. He did, however, have an idea of someone who may be his senior cashier, Tom Spencer. It was an ideal match. Tom had a lot of experience with administration and accounts, and Michael was the people person. He was a seller, a merchandiser. Both invested £300 into the company. And on the 28th of September, 1894, Marks and Spencer was officially born. Seizing opportunities like the astute businessman he was, Marx went against traditional shopping habits of the day and opened up his stores, inviting people in to look and browse, whether they were buying or not. He even put up signs saying admission free above the shop door. While today that seems perfectly fine to us to browse in a shop, this was a new phenomenon. Now a twosome, they capitalized on the popular penny section still, selling useful everyday items like sewing kits and buttons. It was a store for the working people. Less than six years later, in 1900, M&S had expanded to include 36 penny bazaars and 12 high street stores. Mark's trajectory sounds so easy. It seems like once he got here, everything fell into place for this young businessman. But let's back up. How easy was it to come as an immigrant to Leeds in the 1880s? When Michael Marx immigrated to Leeds in 1882, he was not alone. Remember, there had been that frenzy to leave the Pale of Settlement. In the 1901 census in Leeds, there were 7,122 Jewish immigrants living in Leeds, and 6,623 of them came from Russia or Poland. So there would have been a large community of other refugees surrounding Michael, perhaps making his new country feel a bit more like home, But even before this wave of refugees, there had been a pretty decent-sized group of Jewish immigrants. According to one academic, the very early Jewish settlers were usually single men. They were skilled craftsmen, shopkeepers, peddlers, and wool merchants. And by 1860, some had been in Leeds for one or two generations already. They became known as the Englishers and tended to look down on new arrivals, calling them grinners, which meant foreigners. It's also worth noting that there had been a large group of German Jewish immigrants leading into the 1860, but most of them had moved into nearby Bradford to work in the wool mills, a massive industry at the time. Most of the Jewish community in Leeds was concentrated in one area, an area that doesn't exist by the same name today, the Leylands. While the community was good, the Leylands were not known to be the nicest area. 
In Leeds Slumdom by D.B. Foster, a pamphlet published on slums in Leeds in 1897, the author includes the Leylands in his list of slums and goes on to describe some pretty unsavory living conditions. Still, the community was working extremely hard, educating their children well and assimilating into Leeds' life. A massive portion of the Jewish community were working as tailors, including whole families together in their houses in the Leylands. The shoes and hat trade were also very popular. In the 1901 census, 3,144 men and women from the community were working as tailors. But still, there was a substantial amount of Eastern European refugees working as hawkers and peddlers. Now let's take a moment to put our modern life into perspective compared to the Leeds 1880s life. In 1885 and 1888, there were Jewish tailor strikes, and they were in pursuit of reducing the working week. They were fighting and hoping to reduce their working week to 58 hours. It seems like a lot of serendipity played a role in Michael's life. He worked hard, clearly, had good intuition, and took opportunities when he saw them, and not just in business. One day while in Stockton, a place he often went to sell goods, he got to chatting to a man with the last name Cohen from Leeds, and they hit it off. He was invited to meet Cohen's whole family when he was back in Leeds. And that is where he met 21-year-old Hannah Cohen. It wasn't long until the two were married in the great synagogue that used to stand on Belgrave Street. They moved to a house on George Street and Hannah helped with the business, packing sewing kits for the market stalls late into the night. They had two children, including the young boy Simon. Michael had built a life for himself here in Leeds. He had built a business, a family, a community. An immigrant who fled violence and oppression, the North became his home. He made it his home, and he treated it well. He was known for being good to people, and that included his staff. He cared about the people he employed. As an immigrant, I often wonder when the point in my life will be that I will feel more attached to my new home than my old. Does it come after living somewhere a certain number of years, after owning property in that place, after building your community there, after growing a family there? I wonder when Michael did, or if he did at all. I wonder if he ever felt Northern. Michael only lived in Leeds for 12 years before he and his family moved on to Manchester, another northern city. In 1901 in Manchester, Marks and Spencer built their first warehouse on Darby Street. The company continued to grow. Marks then passed away in 1907, and it was his son Simon who carried the business forward into the rapidly changing 20th century. In the current political climate, it's hard not to feel something for Michael. An immigrant who created something lasting and powerful here in Britain. MS is undoubtedly British, 
and it was started by a refugee. Michael came to the North with nothing, not even a knowledge of the language, and grew a British business he could be proud of here in the city of Leeds. The North gave him a chance, and with it, he did great things. And let's not forget those people here in the North who took a chance on Michael Marks. It really strikes me as amazing that Isaac Dewhurst, the Yorkshire man that Michael stopped in the streets and asked for directions, would loan five pounds to this young refugee. If it weren't for Isaac Dewhurst loaning that five pounds, who knows what would have happened? It just goes to show the massive impact we can have on each other's lives and the kindness of the people here in Yorkshire. So next time you're in Marks and Spencers, spare a thought for Michael, spare a thought for Isaac Dewhurst, for Michael's wife Hannah staying up late and putting together sewing kits, for all the people here in the north of England who made that store what it is today. And as well, I can highly recommend you buying the salt and vinegar combo mix bag. It really is great. Northern Podcast is written, edited, and produced by me, Caitlin Badger. Special thanks for this episode go out to Callum Badger. If you would like to support Northern, please leave a review on iTunes. And if you're interested in finding out more, check out the website at northernpodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening as always, and I will see you in the next one. Bye.